I'm sure uh, a lot of you have seen uh, the movie Meet the Parents. Yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> it's one of those really like cringy movies where every part along the way you're just like, just stop, please just stop what you're doing to make this worse. But I wanted to read what the, um, what the description of the movie is if you're like looking it up on you know, Netflix or something like that. Uh, Greg Fokker is ready to marry his girlfriend, Pam. Before he pops the question, he must win over her formidable father, humorless former CIA agent Jack Burns, at the wedding of Pam's sister. As Greg bends over backward to make a good impression, his visit to the Burns' home in, uh, turns into a hilarious series of disasters. Uh, hilarious, that might be a little relative. It's more like, oh, that's, please don't do that. Uh, and everything that can go wrong does, all under Jack's critical hawk-like gaze. And maybe you've been in situations like that before where you're like, I just keep saying the wrong thing, I keep doing the wrong thing, I want these people to like me, to think well of me, but it just seems like I'm trying so hard and things just don't go my way. And we all can relate to what uh, Greg was feeling in that movie of like, well, do they like me? What do they think of me? Am I accepted? Do they approve of me? And he wants this family, especially the father, to say, okay, I'm good with you marrying my daughter, like I'm accepting you, I like you, like you can be part of this family. You know, he has this thing like the inner circle of trust or whatever, and it's like, can, is he worthy of being part of that? And actually what it reveals to us, this movie, even though it's like so you know, outrageous and on the surface of things, it reveals a deep spiritual need, a deep relational need that all of us have, which is to feel like we're accepted, that we're welcomed here, that we're liked, and that we're loved. In this series we're going through, uh, called Now in Flesh Appearing, which is uh, a line from a Christmas song, O Come All Ye Faithful, and it's a, we sing Now in Flesh Appearing because it's telling us now God himself has appeared in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And we're going, you know, leading up to uh, Christmas Eve with this series, and Jesus is called Emmanuel in the Bible, which means God with us. But we need to ask, well, which God? Which God is with us? in the person of Jesus. And the claim of the writers of the New Testament, the last uh, quarter uh, part of the Bible, what their claim is, is that the God of the Old Testament is the one who has now appeared in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And once we figure out, well, which God is Jesus representing, we need to ask, well, what is he like? Uh, what is this God like? Because God with us could be good or bad news, depending on which God it is and what that God is like. And what we're doing is going through... Uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Just those two verses. It's on page, let me grab this and I can tell you it's on the bulletin. Nope, that's not the bulletin. 74, okay, thanks. I need a lot of help today, apparently. Uh, but it's on page 74 if you're using one of the black Bibles back there. Or it's Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. And we went through Exodus, we just got done with going through all of Exodus in eight weeks. And we talked about these two verses briefly, but now we're going back and really diving in to what God says here about himself. And these two verses are the most quoted verses in the entire Old Testament, or what will be referred to as the Hebrew Bible, everything before Jesus, the first three quarters of the Bible. And over 20 times it's quoted fully or partially. And this shows how meaningful and precious these words were to the people of Israel that God had saved out of slavery in Egypt, that they just held on to these words and they came back to him again and again, to tell themselves and remind themselves of what God is like. And God describes himself using five attributes right at the beginning. And so leading up to Christmas, we're looking at each of these attributes. 
and what they mean, and then how Jesus uh, represented those in the flesh when he came. And this is so important to know what God is like because the root of all of our problems in life and the root of all of our problems in the world are lies about God. That's how, and that might be like, that seems a little too simple. Like, that doesn't make sense how that could account for everything in my life and why the world's wrong. But that's what the Bible shows us, that where everything went wrong started with a lie about God. And the lie was that God isn't that good. God isn't that good. He's not as good as he says he is. Like, he's holding out on you. You need to look elsewhere for what you want because God isn't the one who's going to give it to you. And so if lies about God led us away from God, then truths about God lead us back to God. And God said these attributes that we're, going to, we're looking at in Exodus 34 speak to how good he is to undeserving people, how good God is to people who don't deserve it. And through these words and through Jesus, God is inviting us to come back to him by showing us what he's really like. And so I want to give you a, a question that you can think about as we go through this message, and it's this. Uh, well, so first, the message is very much about how God sees us and how he feels towards us. And so the question for you is, what face does God have when he thinks of you and why? What face does God have when he thinks of you and why? What does his face look like? What is, when he thinks or looks at you, what is the expression on his face? And why is that the expression he gives towards you? I'm going to start by reading Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, and then we'll start looking at uh, this word for today, that we're, this attribute we're looking at today. So Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, referring to Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, while who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation. So by the end of these six weeks, we'll have covered everything that's said in, in those verses. And the first attribute that God names there, you can see is compassionate, or in the version, the translation I just read, is merciful. And they're really very connected. Compassion we saw last week is like this uh, inward feeling that you have about someone's situation that leads you to take action. And so compassion isn't just like, oh, like, too bad, it, I don't, you know, it must stink to be them. But it, it's not just that feeling or that perception, but it moves you to take action. And the second word uh, used here is gracious, which is the word we're going to be uh, looking at today. And sometimes gracious is translated also as merciful or compassionate or generous. If you look throughout the Bible, it's sometimes translated as gracious, but other, these other words too. So it's very much connected and compassionate or merciful, the first word we looked at last week, and the second attribute, gracious, often appear together, demonstrating God's emotional response of love to his people when they're in pain or when they're in a situation, even if it's a mess of their own making, of how God's compassionate heart of grace and love goes out towards them. And this is how one uh, Bible scholar described it. It's God's emotional response of love toward people who don't deserve it. And it can show up in multiple forms. One is adjective form, so that's what we have here, that God is gracious, describing what he's like. And it's quoted in many places in the Bible, including uh, Psalm 103, and we'll look at that a little bit later. Um, it's one of my favorite psalms. Um, it can also show up as a verb, meaning to be gracious or to show favor. Like, you know, so it could be, I am gracious, but then it can be, I was you know, gracious, I showed grace, I showed favor to someone. 
And you see this, in, for example, in uh, 2 Kings 13.23. He says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. Or Genesis 33.11, God has dealt graciously with me. Or Psalm 86.3, Be gracious to me. If someone praying to God, be gracious to me. Or Psalm 67.1, May God be gracious to us. So that's a verb form that God can take the action uh, of being gracious to someone. And it can also show up in a noun form, so it would just be grace. So adjective is gracious, a verb is to be gracious, or uh, in a noun form it's just grace. And this is often combined with the word find. And if you've read through uh, the Bible, especially the Old Testament or any parts of it, you might discover these, this statement that people all, will often say, uh, I found favor in their eyes, or I found grace in their eyes, or people pray for it, may I find favor or grace in your eyes. It's often... You know, so find plus grace, they want to find it. So here's how one person uh, described it. Uh, the idiom to find grace or favor in the sight of someone refers to the positive disposition of the one acting graciously and granting favor, a disposition which is manifested in the bright, happy countenance or face of the one granting favor. And so this might be like a weird little phrase to you, like finding favor or finding grace in someone's eyes, but the reality is it's actually very important to you even if you wouldn't name it using those words. Because every six seconds, or every, sorry, six times every second, your brain is scanning your environment and asking, am I finding grace or favor in these people's eyes that I'm with? When you walked in here today, your brain was looking to see, are people glad that I'm here? Or are they kind of like, meh, like this isn't a place for you, you can leave. And so every situation you walk into where there's people, your brain is asking, am I finding favor or am I finding grace in these people's eyes? Are they glad to see me? Are they happy I'm here? Are, am I wanted or am I kind of an intrusion? Am I not welcome here? And so you're always asking that. And so we're always looking for a positive disposition or attitude towards a scene primarily in the face, which you could imagine if you walked in here and I was like, you'd be like, oh, I don't think he wants me here, right? But if it's like, hey, good to see you, glad you're here, then you're like, oh, I'm wanted here. Your brain is looking for that sort of welcome and that gladness. And here's something. We often define grace in this way, as we're talking about today, as unearned or undeserved favor. And you've heard me say that, and it isn't wrong. Uh, grace is unearned or undeserved favor. But favor in the Bible can both be a gift, which is undeserved and unearned, or it can be earned or deserved. And so we're going to look at three instances of how this shows up in the Bible so the one option is that you can find favor in someone's eyes because you deserve it. So you can find favor or grace in someone's eyes because you deserve it. One example is with Noah, uh, Genesis 6, 8. God looks out at the world and he looks and sees and says, everybody's turning away from me. Like their hearts are turned away from me. This world is filled with evil and pain. And then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on to describe him. Why did, why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord or find grace? Because he was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. He had a relationship with God. And so God looks out. Everyone's turned away from him, but he looks and sees Noah. And he fi Noah finds favor in God's eyes because he deserved it or he earned it. Another example is with Joseph. Uh, we're told this. He gets, Joseph gets sold into slavery, human trafficked by his siblings. And when he gets brought down to Egypt from the land of Canaan or Israel, then he gets sold to an Egyptian uh, guy running a household. And this is what we're told happens with Joseph in that household. The Lord is with Joseph, 
and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his eyes. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. And so in the examples of Noah and Joseph, they received uh, deserved, earned favor, which would mean that they were doing what pleased or delighted somebody, what somebody approved of, their actions, their behavior. You know, so you can think of uh, meet the parents. It's like Greg, he keeps not finding favor in his future father-in-law's eyes because he keeps doing things that his father-in-law does not approve of. But in this case, Joseph and Noah, they were doing what another person approved of or that pleased someone, and so they found favor in their eyes. And we, you know, some ways we might think of this as like, well, he favored that child. So we're meaning that child is like, you know, their favorite. Or all in favor, say I. It's like us giving approval to something. Or, I might get in trouble here, uh, the bears are favored to win. And maybe you're thinking, when was the last time that happened? Sorry. I have, I'm, a, I'm, a, I have, I'm a Packer fan. I had to say it. Sorry. Uh, but most often this favor in the Bible is shown to someone in a subordinate position. So the superior shows favor to somebody who's like in a lower status or is more vulnerable, such as Noah and God, or such as Joseph and the, his, uh, his master. So that's the first way. You can find favor in someone's eyes because you deserve it. Or secondly, you can have favor and ask to find more. And so when you're requesting to find favor in someone's eyes, you're recognizing, this isn't owed to me. I've done nothing that you have in, that would grant, grant me this favor, but I'm asking for it. So one example is in the book of Esther that Esther was a Hebrew lady who ends up getting deported to the nation of Babylon when Babylon takes over uh, Israel's land. And then she eventually, is, I might have mixed up my nations there, but basically what happened, I think, sorry, it's Persia. Persia takes over Babylon, and so Esther is in Persia. And basically the king becomes unhappy with the queen. And so he holds a beauty pageant, and Esther finds favor in the king's eyes. When, she, when he looks at her, he's like, Yes, that's who I want to take over in the place of queen uh, that I'm booting my current queen out. So she finds favor in the king's eyes. But then Esther's uncle discovers this plot against other Hebrews, other Jews living in the nation that they're going to be executed. And so he says, Esther, you have an ear with the king. You need to go tell him about this so that he can stop it. And the problem is that she says, well, no one can go into the king's presence unless they're asked to come. Basically, you know, the king's hanging on his throne. And if she would waltz into his court and come up to him, the penalty was the death penalty, that you couldn't approach the king unless he summoned you. And so she's saying, okay, I might die doing this, but I'm going to go and try to seek favor in the eyes of the king. And so she comes, and then the king, he, you know, she, he already likes her. He, she's already found favor in his eyes. But this isn't owed to her based on that favor. The, what would be owed to her is the death penalty for approaching. But then he looks at her, and it says, oh, she found favor in his eyes and then calls her in, and then she asks, may I find favor in your eyes, and asks him to help out, uh, to come eat dinner, and several times she asks him to help out with this thing that is threatening my people. And so uh, she didn't earn it, but she had favor, and then she asked for favor, not owed to her. It could be like, hey, could you do me a favor? Like, I know you don't have, you don't have to do this, but would you do me a favor? Like, it's going to help me out. And so that's the second. You can have favor and ask to find more. The third is you can ask for favor that you don't deserve at all, that you deserve the opposite of it. This is asking someone to see and treat you 
in a way that is the opposite of what you, do, you deserve, to favor you even though you don't deserve their, their favor. And one example is in the book of Genesis when Jacob, uh, he has a brother named Esau, he cheats his brother Esau, and then he runs away because Esau's going to kill him. And then he comes back like 20 years later and he hears Esau's coming out to meet me. And it's like, oh no, what is my brother going to do to me? And then he goes and he says, I want to find favor in your eyes, Esau. He tries to send him these gifts to try and gain the favor uh, of his brother. But he's like, I want to find, you know, may I find favor in your eyes? Like, basically, don't kill me. I deserve it. And he asks for it. Another good example is um, a prophet named Jonah. God says, go to the Ninevites. I want you to go tell them they're evil. And the Ninevites were one of, were like the, one of the worst oppressors of this region during this time. And so God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them that they need to turn from what they're doing in order for to be forgiven. And so Jonah's, Jonah's like, I don't want to go because those people are terrible. I could get killed and I'm not going to go there. And eventually, you know, this whole plot unfolds where eventually he arrives there. He proclaims this message like, if you don't repent, if you don't change your ways, Nineveh's going to be destroyed in 40 days. And then what happens is all the whole city of Nineveh, they're like, oh my gosh, like we need to repent. And they turn and they put on, you know, mourning clothes and they're like, we've done wrong. And then what happens, Jonah gets mad, and God, God comes to Jonah and says, what are you mad about? And he says to him, I knew you were this way. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were gracious. And I just knew you would do this. These people don't deserve it. And so it's one of the instances where these verses are quoted, but it's somebody being mad, like, these people don't deserve this at all. They deserve destruction. And God is saying, I knew you were this way. I knew you would forgive them. I knew this is the kind of God you are. And he's mad about it because they did not deserve uh, to be forgiven. I want to give you an illustration that was kind of helpful in my head. So think about people who fly a lot, like frequent flyers, like there's maybe different levels of getting on a plane. So a frequent flyer would be like they've earned an upgrade because of how frequently they fly. So it's like, oh, you get to sit, you know, in this nice section of the plane, you get warm towels, or, you know, whatever it is, and we'll do, we'll give you a pedicure and a manicure if you want it uh, and it's, I don't know if that actually happens but anyway you get like special special stuff right like you've earned it you've flown frequently and so you get a special status on the plane but so that would be the first example is like I've I've earned this I deserve this but somebody could also be in that special special section of the plane because they're a frequent flyer and then they could still ask an attendant to saying hey, I know this is not usually part of the deal, but could I get this thing? So they already have favor, they're a frequent flyer, and then they're asking for something that they know they're not owed, but they're already seen in a favorable light by the, by the airline. A third option would be that someone is like banned from flying. They're just a terrible, like United, let's just say United Airlines. Like United Airlines is like, you cannot fly with us anymore. And it would be the third thing is like that person coming and saying, I know I'm banned, I know I've earned the opposite of being able to fly with you, but I need to get home you know, to my kids or whatever. Would you please let me fly with you? And for them to say, okay, yes, you can fly, even though you're on the banned list, even though you deserve the opposite, like we will let you fly uh, with us here. And this third example is the position Israel is in. That God is saying that Israel is going to find favor in his eyes, even though they don't deserve it. When he says, I am a God who is merciful or compassionate and gracious, he's saying, Israel, they, if we went back into the narrative of why God's saying this, is that they totally blew it. They broke their relationship with God. They turned away from God. And now God is saying, I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to show favor to you. I'm going to you know, you know, favor you above all other people, not because you've done anything for it, but because that's who I am. And so we might be like, you know, sometimes you might ask, well, 
what does she see in him? Like maybe somebody's uh, dating somebody or maybe somebody's married and you're like, what does she see in him or what does he see in her? The relationship is just a disaster. Like she just keeps getting hurt. So what does she see in this guy that she keeps staying with him? And it's like we might ask God, what do you see in Israel? What do you see in her? Why are you sticking with her? And in the previous chapter, chapter 33, God told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Meaning, I'm going to show favor to whom I'm going to show favor. So it's God saying it's a choice that I'm going to make that these people, I'm committing to them, I'm going to favor them. And so what they've done does not bring God joy, and it doesn't please him. It doesn't please him, but he chooses to enjoy them anyway, to set his love and his affection on him. He's saying, I'm going to set it on you. I'm going to love you. Be gracious to you. You're going to find favor in my eyes, even though you don't deserve it. And so he's going to give his faith. He's going to give favor in his eyes as a gift to see and treat them with pleasure and delight, even though he has no reason to. It's just he's going to do it. It's not owed to them. And you can think of it like this. It's like God takes pleasure in people who aren't pleasing to him. Basically, I'm going to take pleasure in you, Israel, even though what you've done isn't pleasing to me. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to choose it to put it on you. I want to read another little passage. In, uh, it's in two books later from Exodus to Numbers. And this is another often quoted passage in the Old Testament. This is when God is telling, this is Numbers, if you're wanting to look at it, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 25. I didn't look up the page number, so sorry I can't give you that. Uh, but Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, actually. And this is the words that the priests of Israel who like basically manage, they're like the mediators between God and the people. This is a blessing they're supposed to say to the people. It says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or face upon you and give you peace. So you can see in there, this is quoted a lot, but it gives us a definition of what does it mean to be the object of God's favor? What does it mean for, as it says, uh, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you? And those two lines parable, parallel to each other show us, well, what does it mean for God to be gracious? It means for his face to shine upon you. To be, uh, to be the object of God's favor or grace is to experience his shining face of pleasure, acceptance, gladness, and delight. And as I said earlier, God made your brains... <coughs> our brains, to look for that. This is what he created us to look for, to look for God's shining, joyful, glad face towards us. And it's really how we determine if we're safe in love. Because if I'm in a situation where nobody's happy with me there, I feel, you're going to feel very unsafe. You feel very unloved. And that's why often we think of home as that place where I can go and I can be myself. I don't have to put on an act. I mean, that's the ideal and it's like, I'm safe here, and maybe maybe your home growing up isn't where you identify that, but some other place, maybe it's some group of people where it's like, I don't have to put on an act here. I can be myself, and I know they're going to be glad to see me, that they're going to be happy I'm there, that they're going to view me with favor, even if I don't deserve it at all, at all. And our brain was made to run on this kind of joy, the joy of somebody looking at us with favor and delight and pleasure. And so a couple weeks ago, I teased you guys by uh, saying there might be a whiteboard. Well, basically, I had a whiteboard set up and never used it. But guess what? The exact image I was going to use a couple weeks ago is the, the same one I'm going to use today for us to envision what is it like for God to show us favor. 
and what does it look like for him to treat us in a way that's the opposite of what we deserve. Now you get to watch me fumble through trying to get this set up. This is the entertainment for this morning. You're like, where's the whiteboard? Aha! Back here. Would have been way cooler if I had like a thing on the ceiling I could pull down. But so I'm gonna draw so that I'm gonna give you this statement and I'm gonna draw something on here. So the bigger the gap between how much favor someone deserves and how much they're given, the more radical the grace that the person is showing to them. And so there's this gap of what Israel deserves and then what they're given. It's like there's this huge gap. You don't deserve anything, but then God still goes into that gap. And so I'm going to show you this little thing. The special name for it is the cross chart. Super uh, original. The cross chart. So if we think about, it maybe doesn't work out this way perfectly on life. It's like we're going along in life and we are maybe don't have an awareness of God. Don't have an awareness of what we deserve from him. And then all of a sudden we have this realization, whoa, there's this gap between God's goodness and my goodness, that actually I'm very sinful, I've done a lot of things wrong, and so now it's like there's this gap between me and God, there's something separating me from God, it's how relationships work. If you do something in the relationship that hurts the other person, that breaks it, now there's like this distance between you, there's this gap, and how are you going to fill that gap? And the way the Bible shows us is that that gap can only be crossed, can only be filled with Jesus. And so it's like all of a sudden we become aware of this gap between this is where God says I'm supposed to be in relationship with him, loving him with my whole, everything I have, loving other people as myself, but I fall short of that all the time. This is where I'm supposed to be, but this is where I is and I am. So there's this gap. And we come to a moment where it's like, well, how are you going to fill that? Are you going to try to just be better and try to fill it yourself with your own good works? How am I going to get up and measure up to God's goodness? How am I going to do that? Or is it going to be, I'm just going to despair, like give up. I'll never fill it. Uh, or we can be like, well... I just don't care. I'm just going to live how I want. There can be lots of different responses. But what the Bible invites us to do is to let Jesus be the one who fills that gap. That it's, this is God's goodness, and this is my badness, and I do not measure up. And so then, this is how it works in relationships. That if you have distance between you and another person, it's either you can say, well, you've got to pay me back. You've got to make it up to me if you want to close this gap. Um, but God says, you'll never do it. You'll never close this gap. And so the only way is that is if I close it myself, is that if you will accept my forgiveness, which is for the person who is wronged, to say to the wrongdoer, I'm not going to seek payback, I'm not going to seek revenge, I forgive you. You're released from having to try to pay that back. You don't have to be afraid. We're good. We're reconciled. And so Jesus is the one who fills that, that Jesus was the one who died in our place, who took the punishment we deserve for what we've done against God, and then he fills that gap. And then, but what happens is, over time, we become more and more aware of how much we fall short. It's that when I first came to know Jesus, I knew this much of how much I fell short. And then time goes on and on and on, and I keep becoming more and more aware of how much I fall short of actually being worthy of God's love. But then what happens is, the more we become aware of that, now the cross and what Jesus has done for us gets bigger and bigger and bigger so that we aren't saying like God I'm just you know an unworthy piece of garbage why would you love me no we're saying look how much God loves me because I'm more and more discovering how much I fall short how much that I don't 
measure up to what God has said that I should deserve, but yet he gives it to me anyway. And so what Jesus does for us becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And I want to show you just one example from Scripture. It's pretty cool because there's this guy named Paul in the Bible who wrote a lot of letters over the course of like, uh, probably be like 20 or 30 years. And so we can get these little glimpses of how does Paul change in how he sees himself. So he had a very dramatic conversion, hated Jesus, hated followers of Jesus. All of a sudden he has this conversion where he's like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this all wrong. And Jesus saves him, gives him the forgiveness he needs. But then we see in his letters as he's writing to churches and trying to encourage them, is that he becomes more and more aware of just how much he falls short. So one example is 14 years after becoming a Christian, in the letter to the Galatians, he refers to himself as an apostle. And apostles were people that Jesus appointed to be his official witnesses. It's just a, um, a word that means sent, that Jesus sent people. He sent apostles to then tell people about Jesus. So Galatians uh, 1, 1 and 2, 6, Paul, in, when he's writing that letter, 14 years after becoming a Christian, he calls himself an apostle. That makes sense. He's an apostle. That's his title. Six years later, so 20 years after becoming a Christian, in 1 Corinthians, he calls him the least, himself the least of the apostles. An apostle. Now he's realizing, I mean, maybe he's here, and it's like, wait, I'm like the least of all these apostles. All these people Jesus appointed, like, I'm kind of the worst one, like, in terms of what I'm deserving. I'm the least of the apostles. Five years later, he then calls himself, in Ephesians 3.8, the least of God's people. So now he's not even saying, I'm the least of the apostles. It's like, of all God's people, I'm the worst. I'm the least of all God's people. That he's coming to have a more greater awareness of what his status and standing is before God. And then two years before his death, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says he's the worst of sinners. From apostle to least of the apostles to the least of God's people to the worst of sinners. That he's gaining greater and greater awareness of how much he really falls short and how undeserving he is of what God's given him. But what's important to know is that Paul does not beat himself up. And he does, he's not beating, when he's saying this, he's not beating himself up and being like, I'm just a terrible worm of a person. But what's happening to him is that he's not having this low self-esteem, but what's happening is he's increasing his confidence in Jesus, that his love and praise and thankfulness to Jesus is increasing. So it's not that he's being, you know, pounding himself down, but it's like, I just am seeing how much I ha- this is undeserved and unearned what I've been given in my life. And it's increasing his trust and reliance on Jesus. And uh, I said at the beginning of the service, we need to be real uh, and be loved. And the more we can acknowledge this gap, the more real we are being. And so therefore, the more loved we can be because we see that we aren't deserving of it. And so we find favor in God's eyes when we trust Jesus to fill that gap. Trusting Jesus is what pleases God. (laughs) When we're trusting that Jesus paid for it, so I don't have to, that's very pleasing to God. So the question I gave you at the beginning was, what face does God have when he thinks of you, and why? And you could think of it another way, as if God were to text you right now, an emoji that best describes how he feels about you right now, what would it be? What am, I'm, if you've been a part of this church, I bring this up every, I don't know, <laughs> couple months, but I find it so helpful to think like, you know, if we texted God the question, what do you think of me? And he texts an emoji back, which emoji 
would it be and why? And often we have this disconnect between these two things, how we would describe God if we were taking like a little quiz, if I handed out a quiz and I asked you, tell me what God is like, and you might take some of the attributes from this chapter. Well, God is merciful and compassionate, God is gracious, and maybe, you know, maybe that's all you know because we've been like reading from the Bible, but you might have other things that you've been like, well, I know he's patient, you know, he's loving, we would take our little quiz and you all could hand it in, and I could be like, yeah, you got, you got those attributes right. But we often have a disconnect between how we would describe God in a quiz and if and between if God were to text you an emoji, what he thinks and feels about you, what would it be? Is that we can have this idea of God in our heads, but if we're like, well, when God thinks of me, this is what he thinks of me. You know, it could be like the, the meh face. I don't even know how to do that. It's like straight lip, you know, just that. Or it can be like, why are you doing that? I, I'm not, I, I should have practiced that. But uh, basically it's like, well, what's God fa- God's face towards you and why? What's it based on? And the one is we can base on how well we think we're doing, that I, uh, which is true. We sh- it is good and healthy to want to please God with our actions. That is a good and healthy thing. A child wanting to please their father or their mother, very good thing. So God's face towards us based on how well we're doing, we can please or displease God. We can earn or deserve favor in his eyes, and it's healthy to want that. But then what about when you're not doing well? When you haven't opened up your Bible, maybe you've been, I don't know, swearing a little more than usual, getting mad, complaining, or maybe you're just ignoring prayer, or maybe it's like, well, I I haven't been to a Sunday service in two months. Like, what does God think of me now? And the reality is that God can be displeased with what you do and still pleased with who you are to Him. That at the same time, He can be displeased with your actions, but pleased with who you are to Him. I just want to read Psalm, part of Psalm 103. I mentioned earlier, a great psalm that uh, quotes this passage of the Bible. Actually, the first song we sang is uh, based on it. So I'm going to read Psalm 103 if you want to write it down for you to look up later. Uh, The part I'm going to read is uh, Psalm 103, verse 6 through uh, 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And here we are quoting Exodus 34. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And so, one of the phrases he uses in there is in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Well, why? Why doesn't he deal with us and repay us according to our sins and iniquities? And it's because he has dealt with Jesus according to our sins. He's repaid Jesus according to our iniquities. He's counted our trespasses against Jesus. The big IOU, this big gap of what we owe God, our big IOU, Colossians 2 says, that that was nailed to the cross with Jesus, that Jesus was on the cross paying for the IOU we have with God. And maybe you're like, well, that seems kind of weird that Jesus would take our punishment. Like, what did, why did he get that? We have to remember Jesus is fully God. And so Jesus taking on our punishment, him being dealt with according to our iniquities, is God saying, I'm going to let myself be dealt with according to your 
trespasses, your sins, your iniquities. And you might write down, what are all the reasons God shouldn't be pleased with you? And what this passage tells us is that the goodness of God is seen in how he delights in you anyway. How he delights in you anyway. Martin Luther, um, a pastor from the 16th century, said, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Remember we said that God chooses to set his love on us and therefore to be pleased with us and to make us pleasing to him in our actions. And this kind of love lights a fire and joy of love for God. When we experience God in this way, it changes us. I'm just going to end with this one little way that this becomes can become real in our lives. Greetings, how we greet one another, tells you a lot about the health of that relationship. That if you're thinking about, okay, if, when this person comes over for family dinner, you know, or Thanksgiving that's coming up, or if I see this person on Sunday, like, I just don't want to see them. I feel this yucky feeling, like, I don't want to greet them happily. I might put on a face, but am I really happy to see them? And that can tell you very quickly where that relationship stands. If you're not excited or happy to see someone, if you'd rather not see them, it's like, uh-oh, there's something I need to deal with there. And we, you know, we have relationships where we're like, I just can't wait to see them. I, or maybe you're texting, you're like, I can't wait to see you at Christmas. And we're like, yes, you, you know, hug and all this stuff. And you have this big greeting. But you might be like, well, I might be dreading seeing them. Because I think when I see them, they're going to be like, you know, there's a big difference between, we, I said this earlier, but like, are people going to have crossed arms when you walk in? Or are they just going to look at you, you know, maybe they don't have crossed arms, but they just look and then go back to what they're doing. They're like apathetic. Or if it's like, so glad to see you and people come to you and hug you and they're happy to, that you're there, that's going to totally change how you experience that setting. And there's all these passages in the Bible where we're told, hey, greet one another in this way. And it's like, this is weird. Like, why do we need to be told to greet one another? Because there's a huge measure of where that relationship's health at, is at, how connected you are. And so I just want to give you this, you know, one application thing is like, greet, try to greet people with gladness whether they deserve it or not. Give them favor in their eyes whether they deserve it or not. And one of the best images in the Bible is in Luke 15. I can't go into it now, but that middle picture there describes, and this shows us an image of God that is core to our church, is that that is a father running out to his son to greet him with favor that he does not deserve at all. And that picture of like, how does God greet us? Running out to us with affection and love to embrace us and love us and bring us home and clean us up, even though we got ourselves in that mess in the first place. But that image of God that we need to have in our hearts, and then we, then we also express to one another and people in our neighborhoods or at work or in our families of like, how can I show people favor that they don't deserve and how I greet them? Because that's what God does to me. Let's pray. Father, you are, you give us so much we don't deserve. Would you help us to see you as you are? To not see you as this just grumpy person in the sky who's always disappointed with us. We know we disappoint you, and yet you still greet us with favor. We find favor in your eyes anyway. In your son's name we pray for his kingdom. Amen.